0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com.
1: Today on the Bible Study Evangelista show, we're going to look at how negative and toxic thoughts contribute to our reality, how we are co-creators with God, the difference between lower faith and higher faith, and how to live in that higher faith so that we can co-create with God the reality that He wants for us and that we want for ourselves, freedom from anxiety. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Bible Study Evangelista show. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible Study Evangelista, and we're looking today at the nitty-gritty of what is in my book, Just Rest. We're looking at rest in thoughts today, and the basis for our discussion throughout the rest of the series is going to be Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, chapter 3, 7, through the end of the chapter, and then the first part of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, and I tell the story in just rest of how all of this teaching came to be. It was in a period of time where it was actually just before I came into the Catholic Church and there was a period of of inactivity, I'll say that God sort of forced on me. I had always served in church for years and I, I loved it. I wasn't tired, I wasn't burned out. and I felt I felt like I was even being punished because there came a time in my service in the church that I was unable to serve. Now, this could happen to you if you have some sort of diagnosis or if you have an illness or something that makes you homebound or, of course, the pandemic was, was had some of that, that element to it where we were unable to do what we're used to doing. That's a kind of forced rest, a physical rest. And I remember when that happened, I, I was complaining to God, I felt like he was upset at me. Like he had sort of benched me, you know, like in a, a game or a sports event or something like he had benched me from, from playing. And I, f- I felt, um, I didn't know what to do about it. I, f- I felt like I was, I was not doing what I needed to be doing, which was using my gifts. And I, I was resisting it terribly. I f- I was trying to find a way around this inactivity, and what happened was our church split, and we left the church that that we had been going to for years, and we were at a new church. It was a mega church. It was enormous, several thousand families. And all of the places that I would usually have served, Bible study and things like that, women's ministry, those were full. Those had people in all the key places, and they didn't have room, really, for someone else. Now, I did teach some stuff, um, but honestly, it was also a time in which I I was sort of reevaluating everything. But in the beginning, when it first happened, I resisted it terribly, and I, I complained about it to God a lot. And this is the passage that he used to begin teaching me about rest. Because what he told me was, I want you to rest. And I, I kept saying, I'm not tired, Lord. I don't need to rest. <laughs> and and basically what he, he finally said was, you don't know what rest is. You think rest is just not doing stuff. But that's not rest at all. And he invited me then through this passage to learn from him what true rest is ultimately he is rest and as you read this passage it it refers back to well this particular passage in Hebrews chapter 3 it begins in verse 7 you've heard this so many times at mass today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, there was a whole bunch of stuff that sort of popped out at me. First of all, it starts, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And then there's this quote from Psalm 95. If you look this up in your own Bible, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that this is a reference back to Psalm 95, which includes these exact words. It's a quote. And then if you go to Psalm 95, the original events that Psalm 95 refer to actually go back to the Exodus. They go back to where God rescued the people from slavery and he immediately stuck them in the desert. And they had all of these trials and all of these difficulties and all of these deprivations immediately I mean as soon as they left Egypt they had deprivation after deprivation after deprivation and as I the the first thing that jumped out at me about it was how many times this event is referenced throughout the scriptures it's multiple it's at least a dozen. There are more. It's scattered all over the Bible. So anytime you see something like this that spans both Testaments, that's repeated over and over, the Lord is saying, listen to me, this is very important. So it's very important that we hear the message out of this section. And then it says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So that is a specific event, which we'll look at in a moment. Then you have the reference to 40 years, the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, which 40 is the number of gestation. A full-term pregnancy will be right at 40 weeks. So 40 is the number of gestation. It's a it's a number of, of trial. some will say. But there's something trying to be born. That's the point. There's something important trying to be born in a 40, in a, in the number 40. Anytime you see that throughout the scriptures, that's what you should think about. So the 40 days and nights that it rained um, in the the deluge, the great flood with Noah, the de, uh, 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness fasting and praying, all of that indicates there's something trying to be born, Okay. And then the next thing that really, this is what really jumped out. It said, I was angry with that generation. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to be angry with me. I, th- that was my whole fear in beginning to follow God, that he was, he was angry at me, that he was punishing me, that I needed to be punished, that I was, I was bad. You know that was my whole fear of God, and so when I read that, I'm like, "Ooh, I definitely don't want that." And then it says they always go astray in their heart, and I was gripped by that. I thought, "Oh my gosh, Lord, I've served you for years, and I've done it with great pleasure and relish and excitement. I mean, not every single moment, but as a rule, I absolutely loved all that I was doing with Him in the church." And so. I couldn't believe he was saying that about me. They go astray in their heart. I I could hear him say to me, you're going astray in your heart. And I was so gripped by that. Then it says, they have not known my ways So God has ways, dear one, (laughs) and this is very important. It is very, very important to know God's ways. And when we're talking about freedom from anxiety and the debilitation and the paralyzation and the fear that goes with anxiety, we really need to know God's ways. And God's ways are rest. And if we don't know how God leads us from slavery to anxiety and slavery to sin, Unto rest, if we don 't know his ways we 're going to resist them, and that 's exactly what I was doing, and that was exactly what God was trying to get me to see you 're resisting the whole thing i 'm trying to teach you, which is very, very important. He said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest now we 've talked about wrath a lot before, um, but I want to just mention, especially since I have so many brand new listeners and welcome by the way, and a whole lot of non Catholic listeners who probably already know this actually but But wrath, God's wrath is not like a human being's wrath. We get really ticked off really fast and then we explode. But God does not do that. God's wrath is an abiding resistance to sin. It's like gravity. It's built in. So God doesn't have to punish you for sin, although, well, he doesn't have to because it's built in consequences go with sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. So sin brings with it death. It's a, it is a forfeit of something that you're supposed to have. In fact, Thomas Aquinas said that that's the whole essence of evil and sin. It's the lack of something that should be there. So when it says there, I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. Basically, what he did there, if you go back to the original story, is he he allowed the people to resist and rebel until they finally just gave up and would not go into the land, the promised land. That was what happened. The, the text here makes it sound like God prevented them from going in, but it wasn't that. It was that God allowed them to resist to the point that they would not go in themselves. So God wasn't preventing them as much as they refused. And they refused not out of stupidity, but out of stubbornness. Now, this is the warning to us. If you're going to be stubborn and not look at this anxiety as rooted in spiritual warfare and rooted in a type of sin, which we covered last week, I'm not talking about blame here. I'm talking about destruction anxiety is destructive and if you're not willing to see that if you're not willing to see that you can change your thoughts and your emotions that you have control over this anxiety ultimately now not right now right in the beginning we don't have control and that's the whole reason why it it throws us around and it harasses us so so terribly of course we don't in the beginning but if we're not willing to hear the message that we can be healed we can have peace and we're supposed to And that to continue to live in that that state of anxiety is truly sin. If you're not willing to hear that, then God will give it to you. He will allow you to continue to wander in that futility and purposelessness and fear and anxiety. He will allow it. He allows us. We have free will, and He will not enter into a space in which we have not invited Him. More on that when we get back.
0: Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia.
1: 12 of Hebrews 3 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That struck me so deeply. I'm like, what? An evil heart? Lord, are you saying that I have an evil heart? I was I was struck by that. I was almost offended. I was like, how can you say that about me? I pray every day, I read my Bible every day, I serve every day, I do it happily, I don't feel like it's a burden. How can you say I have an evil heart of unbelief? Right. And this is the resistance. This is where the resistance begins. I don't want to hear that I that this is rooted in sin. I don't want to hear that I have the power to change it. I don't want to hear any of that. I'd rather it be someone else's responsibility. I'd rather God make a miracle and get rid of this for me so that I don't have any sort of responsibility about it. And instead the scriptures are very plain that we actually do. An evil heart there means a sick heart. And When we are suffering under anxiety for protracted periods of time, that's that's a a symptom of a deep sickness. And we're going to look at exactly what that that is in this very same line, an evil heart of unbelief. The sickness is unbelief. It's a lack of trust. It's fear. The, The unbelief there means no faith. And you can have all this knowledge and assent to the doctrine and the dogma of the church. And still have no faith. James says that even the demons believe at that level. If you have this head knowledge of God and you assent to the teachings of the church, that's not true faith. True faith is obedience in faith and trust when you don't feel it. That's why the will must be the engine and the emotions, the caboose, because if you let the the emotion be the engine it's going to drive you right out of of the path to the promised land and it goes on to explain so a sick heart of of no faith we could say in departing from the living god there you go unbelief unfaith leads you away from god that's why it's evil that's exactly why god says it's evil do you see the strength of the words here evil heart of unbelief and he's talking about his people He's he's saying to us in this book of Hebrews, this book of Hebrews was written to Christians. He's saying to us, don't have this evil heart of unbelief. Look at this, this account in the book of Exodus so that you don't fall in the wilderness and die in purposelessness and futility the way they did and never reach the promised land. That's the encouragement here. So exhort one another daily while it's called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end and that is just an indication that yes the path is hard the path out of anxiety is hard it takes practice it takes it's a process it takes knowledge new knowledge the renewal of our minds it It takes the transformation of our emotions. But the point is, this is what we're called to. We're called to the promised land of rest. Then again, this repeat of the exhortation, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, every day is today. When you read this passage, every single day that you read it is today. That means that right now God is saying to you, Do not have an evil heart of unbelief. Instead, learn the lessons of the children of Israel in the Exodus so that you can be renewed in your mind and you can be free from anxiety. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, for who, having heard, rebelled? Was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, it wasn't actually all because Joshua and Caleb tried to go in. They they tried to encourage the people to go in in faith, but they wouldn't do it. So at least two of them really did have faith. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. You cannot enter into the promised land of rest and peace if you don't trust God. That's exactly the path. You must learn to trust God in every one of these situations that provokes your fear and anxiety, every one of them. Now, we're going to talk about how to do that throughout the rest of the show. But the, the chapter four there talks about the promise of rest, and it talks about it being an eschatological reality, meaning the final rest is in heaven. But there is a rest, it says, today. There remains that some should enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. And so again, he designates a certain day, saying, Today. After such a long time, it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, in the promised land it means... He would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. So it's talking there about the heavenly rest. But there is also today an earthly rest that God wants us to get to. He wants to lead us there. He wants to show us how to make it to that land of peace and rest. And then he talks about how the word of God discovers our condition and it teaches us how to walk in rest. And That's why we're doing this whole series. I'm trying to give you biblical tools that will help you follow God out of anxiety and into the land of peace. And so here in this passage, we are we're exhorted. It's not just an encouragement. It is almost a, a promise. And a command. A promise and a command are both the same, a word in the scriptures. They're all that sort of interchangeable um, terms. And so they all sort of mean the same thing. So we're called then out of this anxiety and out of this fear because ultimately their unbelief was fear. And that's what anxiety is it's a pervasive, long term fear. And so God is calling us out of that into a land of peace and rest. And so we have to know what this rest is. What is it? Well, first of all, it's not simply inactivity. That's part of it. God is not man. He doesn't need to rest. Now, Jesus did. I'm not talking about Jesus in his body. I'm talking about God as God. He is pure spirit. He doesn't need to physically rest, but he knows we do. So that's part of it. So we're going to look at rest in our thoughts, rest in our emotions, rest in our in our bodies and rest in our spirits because all together those four things make up the rest that God is speaking of. If we don't have rest in our thoughts, we're not going to have rest in our emotions. We're not going to have rest in our body. We're going to be stressed all the time. Now I mentioned in the social media posts that it's known that we can either protect or we can grow. But we cannot do both things at one time. Your body is unable, it's unable, I'm sorry, it's unable to do both of those things at one time. It takes all of its resources to protect and it takes all of the resources to grow. So you're doing one or the other all the time. Your body is not able to keep up the fight or flight response to fear and to protect you and grow too. It's impossible. So if you're constantly in a state of fear, your body is in a constant state of stress. And that stress we talked about last week, it puts a huge burden on the rest of your body. So your body can't rest if your mind and your, and your emotions and your spirit aren't resting. So that's why we we talked in the very beginning, the first show about spiritual warfare, because it begins in the spirit. It's a spiritual battle. This is not simply mental and emotional. This is a spiritual battle which has to be addressed spiritually. If you're not looking at that element, then you're going to miss the rest completely because that's the root of it. It begins spiritually. It's a spiritual battle. But the spiritual battle then takes shape in our thoughts and our emotions, which affect our bodies. And that's why we're doing this entire series on all of those things. That's what my book was about. It's about rest in all of those ways. And that's what I had to learn from God when I was resisting learning by resisting the rest that God had sort of forced on me in this time of inactivity. He was trying to teach me what rest really is. I was resting physically, but I was not at rest in any other way. My mind was crazy. I was afraid. I was anxious. I was angry. I was very, very angry, which I didn't know at the time until I really got still. When I got still and inactive, I started to realize how angry I was that I wasn't doing anything, first of all, but also at the circumstances in this church that had split and all that was going on, which pulled up a whole lot of other stuff. On rebellion and submission to authority and all that, because my entire formation to that point had been on the rebellion idea. And here in this section, we're talking about rebellion. And God was saying to me, you're being rebellious. And I'm like, how can you say this? I have all we've done is work on rebellion. And rebellion against authority because I had a father wound and it caused me to be rebellious. It caused me to be angry. And so God really began to dig around in that root and show me how all of those things are connected and leading to unrest and unrest is sin. Unrest is sin. And when I say that, I'm not blaming us for having it. I'm just saying we're being called out of it and to resist that call is to resist everything that God intends for you completely. You could completely forfeit heaven if you don't learn this lesson. That's the point. And I don't want to do that. And friend, I know you don't either. That's why you're listening to this show. <laughs> so, so we're going to look then. We're going to begin looking at the lessons that the children of Israel were supposed to learn throughout their exodus in a moment. We'll be back in just a moment. in this very short show to develop this as much as I do in my book, Just Rest. So you really need that to complement what we're doing here. The two of them, the book and the series, complement one another so that you get all this information together. But what I will do is begin in the beginning at the Exodus. So we're going to go to Exodus and look at the problems that the children of Israel encountered as they left Egypt. And immediately, the very first thing that happened was they ran out of water. Now, they would have brought water with them, but this was a party of people of around a million. It was a lot of people. And in fact, that was part of why the Egyptians enslaved them is that they multiplied so quickly and they had they were afraid they would take over. And so that was why they enslaved them. There were so many of them that came out of Egypt. So this you got to think this is the people, their children, their flocks, their cattle, all of that had to have water. And so they leave Egypt. And Moses, it says, and I'm in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. That actually means reed sea. There were reeds that grew up because it was kind of shallow in places, swampy. That actually means Reed Sea, but the, the Bible always calls it the Red Sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, which means literally Bitterness. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and he tested them. And he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now he's talking about those plagues. Okay. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Now, there's a whole lot there, but the whole point for us is the fact that they left Egypt and immediately the very first thing they encountered was a lack of water. Now, this is exactly what happened to me. The Lord had promised me that I would be teaching the Bible and that I would be publishing Bible studies. Now, I don't have time to go into how I know that was a promise and all that stuff. It's all in the book. But I had a promise. And the very first thing that happened was he benched me from any activity. And every bit of effort that I put into trying to make that promise happen fell flat on its face. This is exactly what happened to the children of Israel. They left Egypt with a promise, a promise of a land. They get in the wilderness. They're there three days and they have no water. And I did exactly what the people of Israel did. I started to complain. I said, if you told me that I'm supposed to be doing this, why is it not happening? Why am I not receiving this promise? I'm working and working and working at it and nothing is happening. Not only is nothing happening, but everything was, it seemed to be contrived to make me fail over and over and over again. And I got really, really ticked off (laughs) because... Because I knew that or I I thought I knew that I had this promise from God. This is exactly what happened to the Israelites. They they have a promise. They get in the desert. They have no water. The thing that they were promised is not happening. And in fact, it's going to be 40 years before it ever happens. But they don't know that yet. All they know is you said this. And look, here we are. Now, this is your first lesson, okay? When you find yourself in the desert, the desert of anxiety, you're going to immediately, as soon as you start to believe this promise and begin to act on it, you're going to discover that you don't have what you need and it's not working. <laughs> and it's meant to be that way. So don't resist that, okay? It's meant to be that way. But I want to show you something very, very important in this very first Deprivation that the people experienced. It says, when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Now, depending on your translation, it could say they could not drink the water because it was bitter. But there is a particular um, Jewish rabbi, a teacher, who says that this verse should be translated, they could not drink the waters of Marah for the people were bitter. He says that the water itself was not bitter, it was the people. It was the people's perception. They leave Egypt and they immediately confront a deprivation of something they need to survive. Now this is exactly what anxiety feels like. You can't survive, you're going to die. You think that that and you, and you have emoted and thought these this negative fearful thinking and emotion until you're convinced that you're going to die. There is grave danger, and that's exactly what is going on with the people of Israel, but they could not drink the water because they were bitter. It's a matter of perception. The whole point of this very first trial and every single one after it in the wilderness was to Provoke the people and motivate and inspire the people to go to God and ask him for what they needed. But rather than ask the, ask God for what they needed through Moses, they began to complain and they started to panic. And that's exactly what we do. As soon as we hit a situation where we don't have what we need, we're deprived of something important, we start to panic what's going to happen? What if I never have water? What if I sit out here and I die of thirst? What if my children die of thirst? What if my cattle die of thirst? God promised me the land of rest. He promised me a land of plenty of flowing with milk and honey. Why don't I even have water? Right. That's exactly what our negative thoughts and emotions do. They work us up into this total frenzy of panic. That's exactly what happened to the people. But notice that the the water itself was not actually bitter. It was the people that were bitter. Why? Because they had been enslaved for 450 years. They had all of that emotional baggage, they had all of that negativity and toxicity that had built up over several, many generations, and they had been enslaved all that time, and they could not, and ultimately they would not believe that God wanted something better for them. This is the trap that anxiety traps us in. Yeah, God said I'm supposed to have peace, but he doesn't mean me cuz I've prayed for it for years and years. Well, I've said over and over again that grace builds on nature. God, when when we demand a miracle, a miraculous healing of anything, We're testing God, and that's exactly what the people got in trouble for throughout their wilderness wanderings. They constantly tested God. We're going to see it in chapter 16. They left Elim and those 12 wells, and the congregation of the the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and they... They said to them, "Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the ha- in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full! You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger." So they immediately they start complaining again after they've just been provided this miraculous water in these twelve wells and at Mara, they could not and they would not believe that God had something better for them in store. They couldn't learn the lesson, which is whatever you need, simply ask God with trust. That's why the Hebrews passage talked about it as evil unbelief. It's evil unbelief when we sit and marinate in this fear and negativity and complaining and refusal to believe that God has something better for us. God does not miraculously heal us of things typically now he can and as i said last week ask him ask him to but do not make it a condition on whether or not you will trust him because if you do you're testing god that's that's what happened here at maraba or miraba and massa there is a the whole next uh two chapters is about Massa and Maraba, which means rebellion and testing, they they named the place because it was that contentious. They named it that way, and it was it was notorious for the rest of their history. In fact, the whole Bible it sort of condenses the entire wilderness wanderings into this particular um, rebellion and testing. Massa and Meribah. That's that's the proper names that are given to it in the book of Hebrews because that's the name that they named the place when they got there because of all of this contention. So don't demand that God heal you immediately and poof it away because he he probably won't. Instead, he has created us to heal naturally through our thoughts and through our emotions and in our bodies. He made us that way, and that's the nature that we have. And then he adds grace to that, supernatural grace, to super and natural. We have natural, we have the nature that we are made with and created with, which is good, and then God adds a supernatural grace to it. And that's where the healing occurs. It is a supernatural power and healing that occurs as we follow him step by step through these deprivations as we are triggered in the pop quizzes and the circumstances and the relationships that we encounter in our desert or in our wilderness, which is life. It's the the desert valley of tears. More on that when we get back. pop quiz that the people of Israel encountered was a lack of water. And then the second pop quiz was like the first. It was different circumstances, but the same theme. It was deprivation of water. Then God, in the in the first pop quiz, he provided water from for them, but they couldn't drink it because they, they thought it was bitter. And to them, it was bitter. And then we have the uh, water from the rock when they came to Meribah and Massa, which, of course, it wasn't named that at the time. They didn't have water, and God provided water for them from a rock. Then there was a pop quiz on food. They didn't have enough food, and so God provided the manna. And the manna conformed to every taste according to the book of wisdom. So I want you to see that what they received in the wilderness directly corresponded to their thoughts about it. (laughs) They thought the water was bitter when they got there, and it was bitter. God provided manna for them. Miraculously, it fell from heaven, and it conformed to their thinking. Over and over throughout the wilderness journey, the people received what came out of their mouths, what they said about it. And what they said about it was directly related to what they were thinking and emoting about it. Now, this is what I mean when I say that we are co-creators with God. Every pop quiz that we experience in our lives is meant to teach us to trust him step by step. If you have never or rarely felt the love of God for you, if you continue to writhe around in worthlessness and lack of dignity and shame and that kind of emotion, it's probably because you haven't felt God and you haven't received that consolation from him directly yet, but this is how we receive it. We receive it from him on a day-to-day basis as the pop quizzes come and we trust him in them. The pop quizzes are meant to help us correct our negative and toxic thinking, our negative and toxic thoughts and emotions, I'm sorry. And all of that combines to teach us to trust him. And in every pop quiz, as we trust him to heal those thoughts and emotions and, and lead us to rest further down the road and trust him to provide for us in every situation, he does so. When we open the space and invite him in to our deprivation, God steps in and he provides the key though is that we don't demand it in a certain way the people of Israel got in trouble because they demanded that he do things a certain way when we do that when we demand a miracle to be healed or else we don't think it's real healing now you may not do that but I actually did that I was like well if it doesn't happen miraculously then it's is it really even God well of course it is because he builds on nature he adds supernatural grace to it so when we When we present a problem to God and then we demand that he solve it in a particular way, that's called testing God. We can't do that. Instead, we present the problem to him. We open it up. We give him access to it. That's what prayer is, giving God access to our issues and our problems When we invite him in there and leave it all open to him, he will do the miraculous. He will provide for what we need in the most, in the strangest, most wonderful, most surprising, most individual, most personal ways. And when you receive a provision from God that is Individual to you and what you need and and what you long for, and your personality and temperament. It is the it's the sweetest thing ever. When you come to realize over and over because you trust him in each situation, it is the sweetest thing ever to realize how how tenderly and how individually and personally God loves you. And this is how we grow out of this belief that we're worthless, that God doesn't really care, that he doesn't, that he doesn't really love us. It's step by step. In each of these deprivations that we experience in our pop quizzes, pop quizzes are meant to highlight the deprivation that we feel on a consistent basis under the surface. The deprivation of love, the deprivation of peace, the deprivation of it may and it comes a lot of times through actual things that we need. The need for, um, say, money to pay bills or or whatever, whatever it is we need, the need is meant to To send us to God and ask him for that provision in faith, not in complaining, not in murmuring, not in contention, not in fear, but in faith. Now, again, I want to say that temporary fear is is not a bad thing. It's this protracted anxiety that is evil unbelief and that's what God is calling us out of. So if you experience a temporary moment of fear, just tell him, "I'm getting scared here. You have waited so long to show up and and I'm I'm terrified, but but I trust you and I'm waiting on you to provide." And we wait as long as it takes and we don't put parameters on how he should act. We leave it completely open. And as We sit in the pop quiz and the deprivation, the need and the deprivation comes to the surface and we start to panic because we feel it very deeply. Typically, this is a lack of love. We feel a lack of love. We feel needy and it's that terrible neediness. We feel so needy and what we do in that is we seek self-medication we try to stifle that neediness with alcohol and food and sugar which we'll talk about in the next week's show how we get in those cycles of addiction to sugar sugar is the root of of well neediness is really the root and lack of love but we'll look at that at that next week but the whole point of a pop quiz is to is to bring the neediness to the surface we have a situation that provokes us in some way we realize that it is a pattern for the people of Israel it was a pattern of not having food and water it was a pattern of being deprived of what they needed to survive and we need love to survive and when we hit a pop quiz that provokes all of our coping mechanisms, it's meant to show us the root of that need. There's usually a memory attached. We go back to that memory and we remember that we needed something that we didn't get back then. And it was so painful that now we are currently experiencing it again. And a lot of times there are historical emotions involved there and The emotion then is out of all proportion to the actual situation because it's historical. It goes back to something earlier. But every pop quiz is meant to bring that need to the surface. Sometimes it's trauma from the past. Sometimes it's just a fact that God wants to teach us to trust him. But whatever it is, the pop quizzes are always meant to draw that need to the surface. But what we do is we start seeking self-medication. We try to stifle it. We don't want to feel it. It's uncomfortable. We don't know where to get the need met. But the whole point of having the need is to go to God with it. Lord, this is what I need. I think I need food and sugar. I think I'm hungry, but I'm not really hungry. What I'm really hungry for is is love, is affirmation, is all of that stuff that that human beings need to be fulfilled. And so we go to God with the need. We ask him to fulfill the need and we wait as long as it takes for him to act. And he will. People say all the time that God is always on time. But I'm going to tell you, God is always at the last minute. And, and it's after you think it's the last minute. He's still last minute. He's last minute or than that last minute. <laughs> it's, he, he, he stretches our faith. But he does always show up. And in the meantime, we cannot fall into the trap of negativity because whatever comes to us, we're going to think is not good enough. We're going to reject it and resist it because we think it's not good enough. They had water at Mara and they called it bitter. They had manna and depending on their thoughts about it, it was either tasty or not. And over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, what the people received from God, they criticized rather than being thankful for it and grateful. And this toxic negativity, all of this negative thinking did nothing but bring it, bring more pop quizzes in the same theme to them over and over. And eventually they didn't even learn it. They never would learn it. They were rebellious. So resist the temptation to complain about what God does bring you because eventually if you learn the lessons and how to navigate this desert properly, the pop quizzes in that theme will stop. You won't need them anymore. Once you learn to swim, you don't go back to getting swimming lessons, right? God's not stupid, He doesn't try to reteach us for the rest of our lives something that we've already learned. There is a time that you reach the promised land and all of this ceases because you don't need it anymore. But in the meantime, we have to resist negative thinking about it, which I I didn't get into this week, and I'll I'll promise we'll go back to it next week when we talk about emotions too because they're interrelated. But I did mention it last week that we go to God for His perspective. When you receive something and it seems like it's not, not enough or not what you expected. Go to God and ask him for his perspective on your situation, your circumstance, your relationship, your pop quiz. Ask him what, how do you see this, Lord? How should I see this? And if you're in the readings of the church every single day, God will speak to you there about that perspective. He will give you that perspective. And when you have his perspective, you always have his peace with it. So that's the process. And you have to remember that your negative thinking brings more pop quizzes with negativity attached to them because you're You're supposed to be learning how to stop thinking negatively and emoting negatively. Now we'll talk about specific ways to do that in the next show. Until then, I'm I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista.